please turn to Revelation chapter 12. This morning, we will be considering verses uh, 13 through 17, the remaining verses of the chapter. This is the word of the Lord, saints. Please give it your full attention. Thirteen, yes. And when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. But the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. And the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. But the earth helped the woman and drank and and, the earth opened its mouth, excuse me, and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. May God add a blessing to the reading of it. Let us now pray that God would bless now the preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we come before you now in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, and by your spirit. Help us now to understand your word, Lord, to believe your word and to obey. Help us, Lord, to see the great benefit that is provided for us here in knowing that we are protected from the attacks of Satan and, Lord, that he is a defeated foe. Lord, I decrease that you may increase, be glorified in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please, saints, be seated. Well, good morning. I greet you all in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome you on this Lord's Day Sabbath as we continue our study through the Apocalypse of John. When we last considered the book of Revelation, we, I pray, rejoiced with the saints of heaven because of the victorious work of Jesus Christ, Satan has been cast down. The end of Satan's reign has come. The kingdoms that formed one statue, as we considered last week in Daniel, they are destroyed by the rock that comes forth from the mountain. The rock that shatters all of the kingdoms and becomes a great mountain. We sing, on Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Christ said in Matthew chapter 7, 7, everyone who hears the words of Christ and obeys them is like a wise man who builds his house upon the rock. Christ is the foundation of the kingdom of God. He is the Christ, the Son of God. And on this rock, Christ said that he would build his church and his kingdom. Christ, in his earthly ministry, came to declare war on Satan and to defeat him, as was promised way back in Genesis chapter 3. By Christ's life, death, and resurrection, he takes away the keys of death and Hades from Satan. We learned that the victory of Christ on earth corresponded to the victory of Christ in heaven. As we discussed last time, on earth, Christ was pursued at birth. On earth, Christ was tempted in the wilderness. On earth, Christ was opposed by religious leaders, betrayed by his friends, afflicted in the garden, unjustly tried, and unjustly convicted to death. 
And while this opposition was taking place on earth, there was also opposition taking place in heaven. There was also a battle taking place in heaven. Something that I did not mention last week that I think bears witnessing now is that Satan is not making war in that he is in uh, both places at the same time. Satan is not in heaven and Satan is not in earth at the same exact time. Satan does not have the divine um, attribute of being omnipresent. He's not all places at once. Uh, So for those who grew up in my tradition who say Satan is attacking me here, uh, he can also not be attacking someone somewhere else at the same exact time. Uh, In my tradition growing up, Satan was in everything and everywhere. Well, he's not God. He cannot do that. Satan does not have this divine attribute. Satan can tempt, can attempt to tempt Christ and then return to his battle against Michael and his angels. But he is not in both places at the same time. I hope that's helpful. The Lord said in in Luke chapter 10, after his disciples reported that even demons submit to them as they used the name of Christ, the Lord says in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 18, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. The Lord was anticipating the time when, because of his victory at the cross, Satan would no longer be allowed a place in heaven to accuse the saints. He would be cast down. In John chapter 12, our Lord publicly prayed, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. That is of heaven. When Christ rose from the dead, he took the keys of death and Hades. The ruler of heaven and earth is now Christ. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our God. When we come to the 12th verse, John sees rejoicing in heaven because of the victorious resurrection of Christ. John simply sees that Satan has been thrown down, that the angels were not strong enough to oppose Michael and his angels, and there is no longer a place found for them in heaven. Christ is victorious, laying down his life and taking it up again. Christ proclaims liberty to the captives and victory to all those who place their faith in him alone. Our Lord said after he rose from the dead in Matthew chapter 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Christ says. And there is therefore great celebration in heaven as all of the saints in heaven proclaim. Revelation twelve ten. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them before our God day and night and they overcame him because of the blood of the lamb, because of the word of their testimony. And they did not love their life even when they face death. Saints, while there is rejoicing in heaven over the victory of Christ and the privilege of the accusing of the brethren being taken away from Satan, we must also remember that there is a great warning as well. John sees a great warning in this, verse 12, Woe to the earth and to the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. While in verse 12, John sees that Satan has been thrown down, that Satan's time is short before he is finally judged once and for all. John sees in verse 13 that Satan is expressing his wrath on earth. He is pouring out his wrath on earth. He's been cast down. He no longer has the privilege of being the prosecutor against the saints. He has been thrown down, but he is also 
now seeking and pursuing the woman to persecute her. He no longer has a place in heaven. He no longer has a word against you who are in Christ. He has been thrown down. His time is short. But there is a great warning for the saints who are here on earth. The time of Satan's final judgment is near. The time when Satan will be cast into the lake of fire is near. It's closer today than it was yesterday. And because of this, Satan escalates his efforts against you and I, the people of God. In one final attempt to inflict pain upon the people of God, he is, he is like a wounded animal. And you and I both know that wounded animals are often more dangerous when, when they are wounded, as it is with Satan. Let me ask this though. He's on earth. He's in, intending to, um, seeking to, pursuing the woman to persecute her, to inflict pain upon her. John, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, emphasizes that Satan has been thrown down, but he's not given up his fight. He is a defeated foe. The game is over. But in his final acts of insanity, he seeks to afflict the woman of God, the church, because of their, her identification with him. In Satan's mind, afflicting you is like afflicting Christ. We are the body of Christ. And so to afflict you in Satan's mind is to afflict Christ. To harm the body of Christ is to harm Christ. And see, Satan will give all of his efforts toward that end. What then does God communicate to his church about the tactics of the dragon? So that we might be both prepared and armed to fight against him and his devices. With God's help then, we will consider just two points this morning. Uh, first point will be rather long. Second point, shorter than the first. Number one, Satan's deception. I- I'm not going to go this morning in particular order. I'm going to grab a few and then make some points from them. So this is verses 12, or verse, I'm sorry, 13, 15, and 17. This point is taken from verses 13, 15, and 17. Now, in verse 6 of the 12th chapter, John sees the woman fleeing. Fleeing into the wilderness... Because there in the wilderness, God has prepared a place for her where she can be nourished for 1,260 days. We'll talk more, but maybe about that time period. But when the woman flees, or as we learn, flies to her place in the wilderness, what is a dragon doing? We're not told that in verse 6. We kind of have to make that assumption that the dragon is pursuing the woman, which we are later told that he is. In verses 7 through 12, we are given the counterpart vision from heaven where there is great war taking place between God and his angels and Satan and his angels. You remember that this heavenly counterpart is meant to be that when one thing is happening in heaven, another thing is happening here on earth. Verse 13, and when the dragon saw that he was thrown down to the earth, back to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Now, we're going to kind of do some recapping, but but get to a point. Because of the person and work of Christ, Satan has been thrown down. He no longer has any place in, in heaven. He is now on earth, attempting to wreak havoc, listen to this clearly, upon the church. Is he wreaking havoc upon all of humanity? Yes. But specifically, his aim, his eye, is toward the church. Those who identify with the male child, the Lord Jesus Christ. He persecutes the woman. Persecute. 
the word could be rendered in two ways, both persecute and pursue. It, it, it connotes the idea of, of both of these things happening at the same time. He is pursuing the woman to persecute her. Now, how does Satan pursue and how does Satan persecute? This is important. Is Satan causing car accidents? When someone is in a deadly car accident, do, do we say, the devil did it? Is Satan causing cancer? When someone comes down with the diagnosis that they now have cancer, is it Satan's fault? Did Satan cause COVID? Is Satan causing earthquakes? Is Satan causing droughts? Again, from my tradition, Satan was the cause of every evil thing. Every bad thing was Satan's fault. That behind every unpleasant experience, Satan is there orchestrating, pulling the strings to suffering and hardship. Is that the case? When you are sick, or when your child is sick, or when your loved one is sick, are you attempting to bind Satan? John gives us the answer to that question in verse 13 and 15. He persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child, and the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman, so that he might cause her to be swept away with the flood. John gives us clarity as to the manner, the, the main two ways in which Satan pursues and persecutes the woman, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The manner of Satan's persecution is found both in, listen to this, physical persecution and also deception that is symbolized by water being poured out of the mouth like a river. Now, how are we to understand all of this? We are to be good students, right? So we interpret scripture with scripture. So let's labor, I think, to discern how this is, is so and how it is that we can clearly see that Satan persecutes us so that we can identify it as being from Satan. Let's deal with the first one, attack. Uh, Satan's physical attack or physical persecution. I'm going to do kind of a, a running thing through scripture and then get, I think, to the meat of it. When we consider verse 6 of this chapter, the woman flees into the wilderness. She goes to the place prepared by God. She is there for a period of time. The background that we know is the children of Israel fleeing from Egypt when they were set free. When they were released from their bondage, Pharaoh pursued them in order to kill them. They were the people of God. He pursues the children of Israel in order to persecute or kill them. This is the current activity of Satan. It's the way in which Satan persecutes the church. They are pursuing, Christ, or the devil is pursuing the woman to kill her because she is one with Christ. Uh, does the devil care about those who are not in Christ? I'm sure that the devil um, does not have any, any greater um, care for them, that he hates them just the same because they are image bearers of God. But he specifically pours out um, most of his venom toward those who are in Christ. Just as Pharaoh, who in Ezekiel chapter 29 is called the great dragon, pursued the people of God after they had been liberated from bondage. Satan, the ancient serpent, pursues the church who has been liberated by Christ. 
in order to create chaos, disrupt, and to ultimately destroy, or as many of us know, to kill, still, and destroy her. Consider the church in the book of Acts after the victorious resurrection of Christ. After uh, Christ has liberated captives at Pentecost, where there were 3,000 souls who had repented and trusted in Christ, who were liberated, therefore, the church began to be devoted to the apostles' teachings, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. Did not, or did Satan not, pursue Peter? Did he not pursue John and have them arrested in attempts to silence the message of the gospel of Christ and of the kingdom of God? Yes, he did. For a time, Satan even used Saul, who ravaged the church and did what? Pursued her. Uh, Saul was going from house to house, dragging off men and women and dragging them into prison. Was Saul not filled with Satan to pursue the woman and bring her into captivity? Yes, it was while in pursuit of the church that God put Saul to death. And on the road to Damascus, God raised up Paul and called him to suffer for his name's sake. And our brother Paul, what what happened of him or what became of him as he began to preach the gospel of Christ and the kingdom of God to the Gentiles? Was he not pursued in town after town? His life was pursued in Damascus as the Lord was using Paul to confound the Jews and prove that Jesus is the Christ. A plot was devised by Satan. Who else could be behind the plot but Satan to put Paul to death, to kill him? But the disciples of Christ learned of this plot and helped him escape through through the night in an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. There would come a time when our brother Paul would run no more, when he had fought the good fight, when he had finished his race and would be killed for the sake of Christ. The same could be said about all of the disciples of Christ, all of who were pursued because of their preaching of the kingdom of God and who met a fatal end because of their unwillingness to be silent of the preaching of the good news of Christ. But saints, we must not think that the pursuit of Satan has ended with the apostles. Satan's time is short. He's enraged and he makes war with the church. All of those who hold fast to the testimony of Christ, he is after you. He wants to steal from you, to kill you, and to ultimately destroy you. Of the seven churches in Revelation... They were experiencing tribulation. They were being physically persecuted by Satan. In Smyrna, the Jews opposed the church for their testimony of Christ. And many, Christ said, would be thrown into jail. In Pergamum, Satan put Antipas to the sword. Put him to death because of his faithful witness to Christ. It's important that we understand that Satan attempts to physically persecute the church because of her faithful witness to Christ. Therefore, we must not expect anything less than opposition when we testify to Christ. Now, it's common, bless you, here in the United States, because this country has been built on free speech, for us to not not know what it means to be physically persecuted for speaking faithfully and freely about Christ. But as we know, this privilege is not afforded to every country. Just because we are not experiencing physical persecution here does not mean that the church itself or the church Catholic is not experiencing physical persecution. 
In what ways does Satan physically persecute the church? Does he make us have cancer? Let's get to these. Does he cause us to have diabetes? The answer is no. My my brother died from a certain disease. It's the devil's fault. Not necessarily. Disease is a product of the fall. Each and every one of us will experience some kind of ailment, some kind of sickness. And it's not always because of Satan. Germs exist. Germs create diseases. Germs create sicknesses. They are a product of the fall. Man is made with the potential of becoming sick. But he only realizes that potential after the fall. When we have disease, it's not necessarily because of Satan. It's not necessarily because of a sinful act that we've committed either. There are some who grew up with a tradition that if you are sick in some kind of way, you must have done something really sinful. And that's why you're sick. It's not always because of a life of overindulgence or a life of substance abuse that one finds himself in a place of sickness or disease. You know that there are many who live very healthy lives. And because they have, unfortunately, inherited certain genes, they will be diagnosed with particular diseases that they have done all their best to avoid in their lives, while others live unhealthy lives. And because of the same matter, because of their genetics, they live long lives, which perplexes all of us. How are you still alive? Disease is a product of the sin of the fall of man. Man finds himself filled with diseases because of the first sin. We have all sinned. And in God's wisdom, he has allowed some to suffer more than others. But suffering and sickness is never an indication of God's greater or lesser love for you. And it's also not an indication that you have somehow been afflicted by Satan. Because we've learned that Satan, he afflicts the church when we faithfully proclaim the gospel of Christ and he seeks to pursue you and put you to death in that manner. Sickness is a reality of a fallen world, saints. You will get sick. There will be some of us who will be blessed to be able to die in our sleep without any sickness. We are not all so fortunate. For the great majority of us, we will die in some kind of sick way. It's a product of the fall. Every one of us. But let us not confuse physical sickness with being persecuted by Satan. Let us not say when we have a cold or when we have COVID or when we have cancer, Satan is persecuting me. Uh, no, you are a product, dear friend, of the fall of man. And sin is the reality of a fallen and sick world. Uh, disease is a product of a fallen and sick world. Let us put physical per uh, persecution in its proper context. Physical persecution, when you are being persecuted by Satan, you can identify it as this. When you are preaching the gospel and a punch comes to your face, Satan is persecuting you. When you are preaching the gospel and you are being threatened by your boss or by your co-workers to stop speaking in the name of Christ or you will lose your position, you are being persecuted by Satan. When you are with your family and they don't want to be around you, and when you are around them, they would like for you to stop speaking about the name of Christ, you are being persecuted by Satan. You are being opposed by Satan. We don't want to call our family members and friends filled with Satan. But when they are opposing Christ, rather than championing Christ, they are filled with Satan.
in this country, we know more verbal opposition, which verbal is usually verbally threatening. If you don't stop speaking, uh, even the physical way in which they, they oppose you can often be very violent. It can be threatening. They want you to stop speaking in the name of Christ. Who could be, be behind such threatening um, actions but Satan himself? Don't say I had a bad day. My finances are not what they should be. People in the house are not getting along. You're not necessarily being persecuted by Satan. You're just experiencing what it means to live in a fallen world. I got cut off today. I had some road rage on the road. And you're not necessarily... Where's the preaching of the gospel there? It's That person doesn't know that you're a Christian when they've given you the finger and you've given one back and you get now are, are seeing who can whatever, race each other down the road. That, that's not a part of being physically persecuted by Satan. Uh, that's living in a fallen world. We overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Since the resurrection of Christ to this very day, saints all over the world have faithfully gone to their grave proclaiming the good news of Christ as they were put to death in some kind of way. Uh, we could go through the history. Is it, is, is it necessary? You know that for those who have faithfully uh, proclaimed the gospel of Christ, they have met opposition. We might ask ourselves, how much opposition are we experiencing in our lives? And if little to none, then when and where are we being witnesses for Christ? Not that you're not a believer, but how often are we being faithful in our witness for Christ? We must hold fast. We must not fear those who can only kill the body but not kill the soul. In Satan's anger, because he has been thrown down, he is seeking to persecute the church, but he is also seeking to deceive the church. In verse 15, he is the serpent who pours water from his mouth like a river from the woman, uh, after the woman. <clears throat> this is a callback to the serpent who deceived the woman in the Garden of Eden. He is called serpent in verse 15 as a callback to Genesis chapter three, uh, 3, so that he attempts, in the same way, he attempts to deceive the woman, uh, the bride of Christ. And he does so with satanic agents, demons. They are false teachers. They are compromisers. Uh, they are demons disguised as sheep. They do seek to, we're going to get to a point on this, they do seek to infiltrate the church in order to pollute the church and to deceive the church. They do this. Consider... The persecution with deception that Satan attempted upon the churches in Revelation. And then let's walk backwards just for a little bit. The church in Ephesus. Now listen to these things. They would not tolerate men and those who were false apostles. Even though Satan attempted to infiltrate the church with such men. They would not tolerate. They would not tolerate. That's important to keep in mind. In Pergamum, false teachers were filled with Satan. They sought to create chaos in the church with their heresy, but it was not going to be allowed. In Thyatira, a self-proclaimed prophetess was leading servants away from Christ with immoral acts. But for the faithful there, they would not tolerate the woman Jezebel. Getting to a point. In Sardis, there were some who had not yet soiled their garments with false teaching, even though it was present. There were some who had not yet soiled their garments. The faithful did not. In Philadelphia, they were being opposed by the synagogue of Satan. But Christ calls them to remain faithful. In Laodicea, 
Satan had attempted to distract the faithful with the riches of Laodicea to cause them to value possessions more than Christ. But the faithful would not value anything more than Christ. Satan pursues the church so that he might, yes, persecute her physically, but also persecute her with deception by polluting truth. Look at Acts chapter 15. You don't need to turn there. There's a dispute over circumcision, whether or not it is required for salvation. Romans 14, saints are disputing over clean food and unclean food, over which holiday is to be required and honored. 1 Corinthians, there's division in the church for a number of reasons. Division because some say they follow Paul. Some say they follow Apollos. Some say they follow Cephas. Division because there is immorality in the church. A man has his father's wife. Uh, Saints were suing one another and taking each other to court. Saints were not considering one another before they came to the Lord's Supper. Not waiting for one another. Saints were boasting about spiritual gifts and making making others who didn't have the gift feel as though they were second-class citizens of the kingdom of God. Later, they would challenge the authority of Paul in Galatians. In Galatians, I should say, false teachers attempted to infiltrate the church and the church was being turned away from a a different gospel. Paul says that is not another gospel and anathematized any who followed that false gospel. Paul and Peter had a dispute because Peter was reverting back to the requirements of the law and turning his back on Gentile brothers, brothers and sisters. I think you get the point. All of these different infiltrations of false teaching, Satan was behind them. Every single one of them. Survey the scriptures. See the diverse ways in which Satan attempts to persecute the church with deception. To pollute us. To to make us believe that which is not true. There are more ways in which Satan attempts to intimately, though, deceive. Now... I said in Revelation, the true church, they did not tolerate false teaching. They would not put up with certain false men and false women. It's what the true church does. So when we're thinking about Satan attempts to pollute the church with false teachers, we we might automatically think, yes, Benny Hinn, or yes, T.D. Jakes. Let me be honest with you. The true church doesn't listen to those men. As filled to the brim as those churches may be, The true church does not stay there. The true people of God don't stay under the teachings of a Stephen Stephen Furtick. They lead eventually. Uh, Enough scripture has has been put in their face to where they go, there's something different about what I see here than what you're saying there. The true church eventually comes out. Look at you. You know where you were. You know what you were, you were hearing, what you were believing. How did you get out? God, by His Spirit and by His grace, drew you out. The true church doesn't stay there. So when we're talking about Satan infiltrating the church with deceivers, let's not immediately think, yes, he, he deceives us with it because he can't. You are no longer deceived by those false men and false women. You've been given the mind of Christ. You've been able to discern truth from error. Satan cannot take you from the hand of the Father. You cannot lose your salvation. But you can be tempted with deception. In what way 
I sat for a long time thinking about this because here's what we don't want to do. We don't want to put the way that Satan deceives us or attempt, let me say, attempts to deceive us and place us in the category of those who are not actually believers. I was thinking about this. I listened to a, a, a brother of ours preach about this and he gave 17 ways in which Satan deceives. And of all of those 17 ways that Satan deceives, I thought, all of these things sound like things that are done for unbelievers. A believer doesn't believe all of these things. They won't give in to all of those things. That sounds like what unbelievers do. So, how does Satan attempt to deceive the believer? I think he attempts to, to, to deceive us with discontentment. I, I wanted to really get to the matter of this. How does Satan attempt to deceive? We have considered the fact that Satan infiltrates the church with false teachers. Yes, he does that. But the people of God have been given certain discernment. They, they can discern um, wolves from sheep. We can think of a number, a number of vices that we might be tempted to give into. We might think of, oh, he tempts us to fornication. He tempts us to adultery, to greed, to drunkenness, to fits of rage, to gossip, and a host of, of, of other sins. But for the believer, the believer doesn't stay in fornication. They, they may, unfortunately, give in to fornication for a time, but they don't stay there. Are you with me? The believer may, may give in to a, unfortunately, it's happened, to adultery. But they don't stay in adultery. The believer can't. His conscience won't allow him to. If he stays there, he's not a believer, right? The believer may be tempted and, and may even give in to greed, but he doesn't stay there. My, my question then is, how does he, when he goes to those places, unfortunately as he does, how does he get there? What makes him go there? Let's get to the root of it. What is it that, that would cause the saint to eventually say, greed, I, I will go there, even though we know he won't stay there, adultery, fornication, all of these other things... They, they, they from time to time go there, but what makes them go there even though they won't stay there? Are you with me? Why would a true believer, why would they pursue any of those vices ever at any time? Well, I think let's do this then. What are they really in pursuit of? Let's get to the root of it. Our problem is we start to look at all these different acts and we don't get to the root of it. What's the root of it? I believe that each of those acts are rooted in a pursuit of this satisfaction that they think will produce joy. They are looking, we are looking to be fulfilled in some kind of way. And so we pursue these, these vices from time to time, which we shouldn't, but we do. And don't stay there. Let me keep emphasizing that. Because we are looking for some kind of joy. We're looking to be satisfied, fulfilled in some kind of way. We're looking to be filled up. Because we think in the pursuit of those things, they will ultimately make us complete. Ah, moment. And we want that. When you eat food, your pursuit of that meal is, is, is ultimately this. Ah, that was good. 
You are looking to be satisfied. When, when you drink a particular thing, whether it be water or whatever it is that you, you are, you are looking, seeking to grab that particular drink because you think it's going to bring some kind of satisfaction to you so that you can go, ah. What gives you the most contentment, saints? What fulfills you? I'm going to ask it again. What brings you the most contentment? What fulfills you? That's the problem. Hear that? That's the problem. The question is the problem. What fulfills you? What brings you the most satisfaction? What brings you the most contentment? That's the problem. Whether we know it or not, when we ask that question, we are getting to the root of the problem. When we give into temptation, whether we know it or not, that's the question that we're asking ourselves. And we're seeking to find the answer in the sin that is tempting us. When we give it to temptation, the question that is always at the forefront of our minds is always this, what pleases me? When we give into temptation, the question that is always at the forefront of our mind is this, what pleases me? What satisfies me? What brings me joy? These are the questions that we ask. And when we ask that question, it inevitably leads us to sin. It's the sin, the question, that Satan tempted us to ask ourselves that we will hopefully go find the answer in something that is the antithesis to good, which is sin. More plainly, when we ask ourselves, what pleases me, we will always find the answer with sin. It's the deception that Satan has used from the garden when he said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat, of, you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. Satan deceived... He hasn't, his tactics haven't changed much, saints. Satan deceived the woman into prioritizing her desires over God's desires. You won't die. When you eat, your, your eyes will be open. You will be like God... The deception of Satan is to make the world and life about you. I prayed earlier that, that we have taken God out of his rightful place in our hearts and we've placed ourselves there. The primary tactic of Satan in deception is this, to get us to prioritize our wants over God's wants. Our desires over God's desires. You may be wondering, how is it that the, just the question, what do I desire, inevitably leads me to sin? It's because of the, 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 the prioritizing of self over God. What leads you to righteousness? What question? What does God desire? When I said, what pleases you most? You might, someone say, might, might have said, worshiping God. Good. But why are you saying worshiping God? It's because... That's what God desires for me. So if you've answered that in your mind, that's good for you. You're a believer. 
if you started thinking of all the things <laughs> that you love and desire, then I'm glad you're here. The danger with the pursuit of our own desires is that they are a bottomless pit that can never be filled. The danger of pursuing our own desires is that they are a bottomless pit that we constantly put things into that never can be filled. Never satisfied. Um, my son and I, a few weeks ago, we were at uh, a sports card show. I've been collecting sports cards since I was a little kid. And I was amazed. I'm walking around people who are spending $30,000. And they will say in their videos, I finally got my grail. You know, the $30,000 that they spent on, on a particular card. And you know what they'll say at the end? On to the next one. It's the hunt. It's the pursuit. Even though, imagine, uh, some of us, $30,000, someone say, that's a, that's a down payment for a house. For them, it's just on to the next one. It's a bottomless pit that can never be filled. Now, what is your grail that you that you pursue, that you get, and then once you get it, it's still not enough. You're in pursuit of the next thing. There are wells that don't hold water. That again, we've said before that we fill with our time and our, our resources, our efforts, our emotions, our mental energy, and we anticipate an abundance of satisfaction and joy. But once we get it, it's short-lived, isn't it? It's lasted for, for just a moment, and then the moment is gone, and now we're, we're on to the next one. We expect to, to look at our, our wells and see them filled, but, but when we look, they're empty. And once again, we're dissatisfied. Once again, we're looking for the next thing. What is our counter, then, to Satan's deception? Our counter is found in Christ's agony in the garden when he prayed. Not my will be done. But your will, O Lord. Saints, we have been granted access, Hebrews tells us, into the throne room of God to receive mercy in time of need. But notice where that most glorious statement of our Lord has come. Yes, it was in, it was in the garden. It was in a place of thorns and thistles, though it be a garden. Christ, the new Adam in the new garden, does not seek his own will, as Adam and Eve sought their own will. But Christ seeks the will of God. But in what posture? We know where he was. We know it is the new. It is it is the the type of of the Garden of Eden fulfilled, and that Christ is the new Adam. But what posture was he in when he said those most glorious words, not my will, but your will be done? It was in the posture of prayer, saints. Why does that matter? Because prayer is not for you to tell God all that you want. It's for you to ask God, what is your will? And for your will to be aligned with his will. It's worth I'm learning more and more. It's where the monastics spent most of their time. They were godly men who were not just accumulating knowledge and wealth, but they spent an equal amount of time, even more so in prayer. Because it's in prayer where the question, what do I desire, is smashed, it's killed, it's put to death. And where the question, God, let your will, what do you desire? It's where that, that 
It's where that grows in us. Well, saints, are you praying? We could be spending a lot of time looking for information, wonderful biblical theological information, and you should do that. But are you spending as much time in prayer? It's in prayer where we where we learn to say along with our Lord, not my will, but your will be done. It's where our wills are changed. Our wills are conformed. It is, again, where the question, what do I desire, is put to death. It's where the, the saints ask God, what do you, O oh God, desire for my life? Give me grace to fulfill it. What do you desire for my, my wife, Lord? Give me grace to lead her. What do you desire for my children, O Lord? Give me grace to lead them. What do you desire for my singleness? Give me grace to live it. What do you desire for me, Lord, and and how to worship you? Lord, give me grace to do so. We make plans, don't we? We make a plethora of plans of what we will do. How often do we ask God, what is your will for my life, O oh Lord? Give me grace to follow it. We act and then want God to bless. Rather than asking God, please bless my path. Help me to walk in your way. What is the primary, one of the primary weapons of our warfare? Is it not prayer? Is it not intimate time with God? What is fasting for? I know of a a dear friend, not a believer, a dear friend who had um, a certain matter coming up in their lives. And in order to um, show God that they were devoted to God, they they said, I'm going to to fast so that God will give me the outcome that I want. That's a manipulation of of fasting. And it's an, an, an attempt to manipulate God. Your kids do it all the time, don't they? If I do this, would you give me that? No fasting. Fasting is where we learn not my will, O oh Lord, but your will. Fasting is where we learn to depend on nothing else but God. Fasting is where we proclaim, God, I find my greatest satisfaction, which we'll talk about next, my greatest satisfaction, my greatest joy, I find it in you alone. No food could suffice. No drink could suffice. Uh, No activity could suffice. No entertainment could suffice. I desire only you, O God. Help me to see clearly only you and find myself only in you. It's one of our weapons of warfare. Matthew 6. Pray that we be led not into temptation, but delivered from evil. Philippians 4. Pray. Don't be anxious for anything. The peace of God will guard your heart. Mark 11, pray in faith. First John, know that God hears you when you pray. Matthew 18, agree with one another in prayer. We've been indwelt. We've been graced to be indwelt by the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are partakers of the divine nature so that we who have been given grace might also understand that we've been given a will to pray as Christ prayed. That when we are tempted to pursue our own desires, we have been given the the grace and the will to pray as Christ prayed.
Don't say you're not strong enough. What are you saying about the work of Christ in you? About how Christ has liberated you? Has He not liberated you? Dear saints, for those who ask, not what do I desire, but what God, what does God desire? What is pleasing to God? They can then say, along with the psalmist, my cup overflows. We are the ones who can look at the well, look at the cup and see it's, it's not just filled, it's overflowing. When the child of God seeks to obey God because he loves God, he finds that he's satisfied with God. That God actually satisfies him in a way that increasingly glo- uh, becomes more glorious. Earthly pleasures don't entice him. His hunger and thirst is for righteousness and not for the allurements of the flesh. He finds delight in the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He sees sin for what it is. Skin of pleasure filled with poison that seeks to destroy. He's learned the secret of being content regardless of his circumstances. He does not envy the wealth of the wicked, nor does he love his life so dearly that he is not willing to lay it down for the sake of Christ. Brother and sister, because Satan has been thrown down, he has no authority over you. All the things that I have just said, they're not a fantasy. They are reality. And they have been given to you through Christ. We overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Satan pursues and persecutes, but he has been thrown down and has no authority over you. Secondly, and less, God fights for his people. Verse 14, 16, and 17. We know that the children of Israel's exodus out of Egypt is the primary background of this wings being given to the woman so that she can fly into her place of the wilderness. Exodus 19, 4, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. In the book of Psalms, David repeatedly alludes to the exodus as he prayed for God's wings to shelter him from persecutors and slanderers. Psalm 91, a very familiar psalm. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the wings of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. For it is he who delivers you from the snare and from the trapper and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers and under his wings you may seek refuge. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 40, Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not grow grow weary or get tired. They shall walk and not become weary. Contrary to the children of Israel who grumbled and complained in the wilderness, the true Israel, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, find their strength in the Lord. They will consider their journey through the wilderness as being comparable to eagles who soar in the sky. We don't grumble because we are not wandering. We are flying as we are sojourning. The saint who grumbles will eventually start to ask themselves, what do I want? 
rather than knowing that they have been placed strategically, divinely, providentially in this world at this particular time by God. Therefore, they take comfort and solace in the fact that God is sovereign. God is in control. Whatever my God ordains is right. Onward to Zion they march. Through this journey, this sojourning, not wandering, through this sojourning, each Sabbath we come to a place where we are nourished. We have learned that the place of nourishment is the gathering of the saints where we meet with God. When we meet with God, our souls are nourished. God is fighting for us. Our souls are replenished. God is fighting for us. And how are are our souls nourished? By what? When the children of Israel were wandering through the wilderness, they grew tired and they grew weak. They complained that they were hungry and they were thirsty. They, They wanted nourishment, but nourishment of a certain kind. And God provided for them, did He not? God graciously gave them manna from heaven. He met every need. Their clothes were not torn. Their sandals were still in place. And for the great many, they still longed for the meat that was provided for them when they were in bondage. Dear saints, we have been delivered from a greater bondage than that of Israel. Christ has set us free from the dominion of sin, and we now sojourn through this wilderness. But He brings us to a place in the wilderness where He provides bread for us. Where Christ gives us manna. Now, you and I are eating manna today. Right now, you are eating manna. What is it? That's the proper definition of the word manna. What is it? Well, Christ doesn't tell us what it is, but Christ tells us who it is. Jesus said in John 6.51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread which I give for life of the world is also my flesh. Verse 58 of of chapter 6. This is the bread that came down out of heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. You are eating manna right now. Who is the manna? Christ is the manna that he is giving to you now. You are right now feasting upon Christ. And prayerfully, hopefully, your souls are being nourished by Christ. And it will be a nourishment that never ends. You don't eat today and go, I I think I don't need any more. You are constantly being filled. You are constantly being nourished by Christ. Christ identifies himself as the true bread of heaven. He's what the manna of the Old Testament pointed towards. He not only nourishes, he, he, he doesn't just nourish the body, which he does in small increments, but the nourishment of the body is to point to a greater nourishment, the nourishment of our souls. You've heard this before, right? Satisfied with Christ. What does that even mean? What does it even mean to be satisfied with Christ? We've heard this before. To be filled with Christ. To be complete in Christ. He's the bread from heaven that has been given to us. Are we satisfied with Him in the way that we are satisfied with real food? Will we get full in the way that we get full with real food? 
Are, are you going to leave here today and go, Oof, I ate a lot today. I'm, I'm satisfied with Christ today. Some of you not. Some of you are, are only getting half of this because some of you are asleep. It's important that we recognize that Christ is using an earthly example to communicate a spiritual truth. It's one of the beauties of Christ receiving the beatific vision. He's able to give to us heavenly things and bring them down to earth so that our by our believing in them and living by them, we can be brought back to heaven. I truly believe, as I said it earlier, that our satisfaction is found in our growing in our understanding of what the Apostle Peter said in 2 Peter chapter, chapter 1 and verse 4. That we are partakers of the divine nature. One of the reasons why the Word became flesh is so that we might be participants in the Holy Trinity. I can say that and our minds can just go, next, next point. That's something to literally wonder and marvel at for the rest of your life. We know that when Adam sinned, our nature was polluted by sin. But Christ, and by Christ, we are new creations. All things have passed away. All things have been made new. We have been clothed with Christ. We are made sons and daughters of Christ, and we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Christ is in us, we are in Christ, and now the life that we live in the flesh is by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself for us. He made us heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ in this redemption because the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. This means that we are being made like God, we are being changed. Marvel on everything that we have just said. You are now sons of God. You are joint heirs with Christ. Your mind is being, has been renewed and is being renewed. You don't think like you used to. Your longings have been purified and they are being purified. You don't have the same kind of passion and longing for things that you used to long for. They've changed. Your actions are being sanctified. You are not as quick to act in certain ways that you used to act because your actions are being sanctified. Your tongue marvelously is being tamed. You don't say what you used to say. Your eyes are becoming clearer. You're able to see better than you used to. Your hearing is now sharper. I think you get the point. You're being made like God. Every single one of the aspects of your flesh, because it has been assumed by Christ... Is being sanctified. In prayer, your wills are being conformed. When the preacher is preaching, your thoughts are being molded. At the supper, your faith is being renewed. We turn away from sin because we have been baptized and made a public declaration of our faith in Christ. What does all of that have to do with satisfaction? Is there anything better? Is there anything better than knowing Christ has made you his own and is making you like him? He assumed your mind to heal your mind. Pastor Isaiah recently taught. 
He assumed your heart to purify your heart. You're being made like God. How much do you meditate on that throughout the, throughout the week? Because it's in meditating on that, most often in prayer, that you come out of that closet, as it were, saying, God, you are so good. The things of this life become so much smaller when you've spent intimate time with God before the throne of grace. The things of this world, the allurements of the flesh, they all become dim, don't they? In the light of His glory. What is more, you have been promised the sustaining presence of God until you journey home, until you make it home. God has promised to be with you and not forsake you. Along with making you like Himself. We are going here to be nourished by Christ and then sent out again to marvel at all of the things that God has given to us for our nourishment. Here Christ reaffirms His love for us and we likewise reaffirm our commitment to Him. And when we depart... We continue to sojourn through this world and Satan will attempt to sweep us away with floods. But God fights for you. The earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth and drank up the river which the dragon poured out of his mouth. Once again, a call back to God rescuing the children of Israel through the Red Sea where the scriptures say the earth opened her mouth and consumed them. In Numbers chapter 16, the families of Korah, Dathan, and Abraham sought to persuade the children of Israel to return to Egypt. They said, don't believe in Moses, he's a false prophet. Moses said, if the earth swallowed you up right now, would you believe I'm a prophet? And when he had finished speaking, the earth swallowed them up. And fear came upon the great assembly. I think you can imagine why. John uses those illusions in the same way to tell us and the way that God protected His people then, He protects you now. The voice of the, of the false teacher has been swallowed up by God's truth, hasn't it? Those who used to, we used to listen to, those who we used to believe... Even the things that we used to desire, they have all been swallowed up by the truth of God and the will of God. Praise be to God, He is protecting you. Satan has been thrown down. He has been cast down. But we are protected from the schemes of Satan, even though he will continue to try and try until his final day. We are called, and you are also empowered, to resist the devil. And God's promise to you is this. Because you've been a power to, when you do, he will flee from you. If you want to dance with the devil, he's going to dance with you all night long. And his agents. But you need to be like the best looking person in the dance when he comes up to you and say, no thank you. And send him with his tail between his legs going away and knowing I'm going to have to do a lot better if I'm going to get in with that person. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You are called to stand 
firm against the schemes of Satan, to be steadfast and immovable. You, as a Christian, can stand. You, as a Christian, have been empowered to stand, and not just stand, but to stand firm. To be steadfast. To be immovable. When Satan advances against you. The apostles can give such commands because they were aware of the power that God has given you. I don't mean to get charismatic on you, but the power of God has been given to you. You are in Christ and Christ is in you. You can stand as Christ stood. We would not be commanded to resist if we did not have the power to do so. We would not be commanded to stand firm if we did not have the power to do so. So stand. And when you've done all that you can to do, stand. Don't be moved by the advances of Satan. See through his deception. They are wells that will always be empty. They will never satisfy. They will, they will never fulfill. And God has protected you. He's given you his mind. He's given you new desires. So that when Satan comes and makes war against you, you can see through his deceptions and you can stand against all of his advances. Satan has been cast down because of the victory of Christ and the victory of Christ is your victory. So stand firm. Let's pray.